Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 15th, 2021. It is a Thursday, and under the new schedule, you guys know what that means. It's Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. No more Friday, Friday, Friday. Uh, the Expert Council Q&A Show of the Week. Today's show is uh, it's kind of got a theme eventually. We start out with three segments that really aren't part of the theme, one that sort of is, and then we finish up with three more that definitely are. So maybe it's half-themed. I don't know. You'll, it'll make sense here when I tell you what we're going to talk about today. We'll start off, we're going to lead off, as we do quite often, with the two doctors on the panel. Dr. Ken Berry is going to talk about the benefits uh, of keto to someone who is already fit, someone who's in good shape, at least when you look at them. Like, man, this guy's in good shape. He doesn't need to lose any weight. Does that make any sense to consider keto for that person? Dr. Joe Bones Alton, or as we call him, Doc Bones, will talk about how sunscreen affects vitamin D levels and should you be using it or not. Tim the Toolman Cook, how extreme temps affect batteries for your power tools. Michael the Bee Whisperer Jordan will talk to us about building a habitat for the bees. That's where we sort of begin a transition here. And then we're going to finish up talking all about what people call invasive species. And this just sort of all fell together for me. Nick Ferguson had a question sent in for him on using kudzu as fodder. Of course, kudzu being the vine that ate the south. A little bit of an exaggeration there, and you'll hear more about those types of exaggerations today. Now, that question came in right at the same time that a, an older video from Jeff Lawton's Permaculture PDC Q&A just happened to pop up in my YouTube feed, and I watched it, and it's about the cultivation of non-native species. Should we be doing that or not? And Jeff had a wonderful take on it, and he mentioned a book um, called The New Wild by Fred Pierce that I immediately ordered on my Kindle and downloaded. I'm about 70% through it right now, and it has blown me away. And the, the subtitle, I guess, says The New Wild, Why Invasive Species Will Be Nature's Salvation. And that kind of blew me away. And right when all of this was going on, I got a question about water hyacinth, which is an invasive evil plant that I use. That's a fantastic feed plant for... Livestock. I mean, everything eats it. You can also make ethanol with it, and bees love it, and it filters water. And in spite of all of the positives you'll hear today about how in you know so-called non-natives, invasives, aliens, etc., can be, the person asking me this question, there's something they might consider doing with it. I'd say don't do it. And maybe they shouldn't even be playing with this plant at all where they are. It depends on part of the question as to is it already there. And so this is going to be a very interesting one today. And then I'm going to tell you that that book, The New Wild, is the item of the day. And I'll talk about it even a bit more then. And I think we need to have a broader understanding of this issue. And, man, is there some – I knew it was bad. This is another one of those things like you start looking into what people call science and then you realize, like, the integrity of the scientific community has probably never been lower than it is right now. And that's all based on facts, logic, reason. 
right? That's not about opinion. It's not about politics. It's about here's what's said and here's what's observed. And what's said and claimed does not match what's observed. It, it, that's what we talked about last week, right, with denial of the feedback loop. If you if you you can look at somebody or something or some entity and say, okay, they're just they just made a mistake. They're just wrong. They're just incompetent. But when the feedback keeps coming, showing that you're wrong, and you continue down that path, and we know you're not that stupid, you can only come to one conclusion. So this is going to be an interesting show. We're going to lead off in that vein and in that theme with an expert council member we don't have a, a segment from today, but I have a quote from him, and I am paraphrasing a bit here, but it's close enough that I'll attribute it to Ben Falk. He said, when the question of native versus non-native species comes up, I always ask, native to when? And that is a very astute way to take the person that's generally being argumentative and attacking this concept and putting the onus back on them in a very, you know, I guess politically correct or very gentle or very diplomatic way. Ben's really good at dip, being a good diplomat and a good good at engaging with people without being hostile, but yet putting them back on their heels with, you know, facts. Because there's so many things that will say, well, it's not native. It shouldn't be here. Again, native to when? It wasn't that long ago, during the Younger Dryas, the last ice age, where the ice came down over places like pretty much almost all of, of the United Kingdom. Yes, the northern United States, but there's a big giant land you know, below there that animals can just kind of follow the ice back up. So, you know, are they invaders or whatever? But but the island that we call the United Kingdom or, or Britain today, England and Wales, that whole place there, Scotland, etc., was pretty much just, the, the soil was just eroded to the bedrock about 12,000 years ago, 11,000 11, and change, when that ice age receded. It was a barren land. A tremendous amount of what we call natives in that particular... I learned this from this book. Has only been there for around 5,000 years, and the earth is like 4 billion years old. Native to when? Many plants that we look at today, and we consider them natives because they behave as we would like them to. We call them natives, and when you actually investigate them, they're not natives. They were brought by man, either intentionally or unintentionally. Native to when? I consider myself a native member of the country we call America. I was born here. All of my, you know, my parents were born here. My grandparents weren't. Native to when? Native to when? We go fishing in the streams of Pennsylvania as a kid. And the brown trout is from Germany. They call it the German brown trout. It's a, it's a, a European fish. But sometimes we'd catch a brown trout. And when you got the fillet knife out, you took that fillet off, that flesh was orange like a salmon because that fish was born and grew in that stream and it had gotten enough keratin in its system from eating shellfish and certain insects. That's why its flesh turns that orange color versus a stalked one that had a white flesh, native to when. Whenever somebody makes an accusation of a thing, 
It's really important that we get the definition of it correctly, and I've always been grateful to Ben for letting me hear him make that phrase, native to when. That's a very insightful question. It's often better to ask a question than give an answer when you want somebody to learn something. Because when we ask a person a question, we challenge them to actually figure out if they understand what they're talking about in the first place. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and dig on into it today and, and get into um, the benefits of keto to someone who's already, you know, if you looked at him, you just say, man, I, I wish I looked like this guy. This guy's in great shape, and he's not doing keto, so why does he need keto? Ken, what do you say about that? Hello, Jack and the TSB crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Calvin. Calvin says, what are the possible benefits of someone like me going keto? I'm six foot one, weigh 150 pounds. In other words, I'm thin. Thin runs in the family. I eat some carbs. Breakfast is one-third cup of oatmeal or farro or bulgur or millet or buckwheat or quinoa with one ounce of raisins and two dried apricots. I don't eat a lot of sugar except a small, and I do mean small, dish of ice cream on Saturday night. A few times a week, I'll eat one-half cup of rice, white or brown, or four ounces of whole wheat pasta. Any processed food I eat is rare and lightly processed. So it's, this is an excellent question, Calvin. First of all, I would uh, argue with Calvin's statement that he doesn't eat a lot of sugar because a breakfast with a third a cup of, of a grain plus raisins or dried apricots is pure sugar. Uh, there, there is a few vitamins and minerals, but that's pretty much just a bowl full, full of sugar. And uh, I understand Calvin is thin, but dang it, eating just a third a cup of oatmeal with an ounce of raisins, that's your breakfast? I, I feel like I would die. But anyway, the benefits for someone like Calvin of adopting a proper human diet that could be keto, ketovore, or carnivore is that there are two things that can remain hidden in people with genetics like Calvin. One is chronic hyperinsulinemia. So based on your genetics, you may be someone like me who fattens very easily if you eat too many carbohydrates. Other people don't fatten nearly as easily, and Calvin hints at this uh, with his family history of everybody's thin in my family, but Calvin could absolutely be suffering from severe hyperinsulinemia, which increases his risk of heart attack, stroke, and hundreds of other medical complications, but yet be inside of a skinny body. The second thing is chronic inappropriate inflammation that comes from eating lots of grains and sugars, which uh, raisins and dried apricots are pure sugar, if you didn't know. You can have chronic inappropriate inflammation that manifests itself as gut problems or joint problems or skin problems or mental problems and never make the connection that it's coming from the chronic inappropriate inflammation caused by the foods in your diet. Uh, this is why I repeat all the time that, that keto, carnivore, anywhere in between is not a weight loss diet. It's a weight optimization diet, and it reverses chronic hyperinsulinemia and chronic inappropriate inflammation. So, Calvin, I think you'd benefit greatly but from eating keto or carnivore, but not from weight loss. You probably wouldn't lose any weight whatsoever, and you could start eating more than a third a cup of, of oatmeal for breakfast. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Berry. Talk to you guys next time. 
So I, when I listened to that, I chuckled when he said, you're eating nothing but sugar. Because that was the first thing. When I was listening to Ken read that, I was like, it's all sugar. It's all sugar. And let me, I know people don't want to believe this, but let me give you a, a little chemistry reason that that's true. If you bring me a pound of bread or you bring me a pound of sugar, and I, as someone who knows how to make fuel that you might accidentally spill into your mouth, moonshine, Per pound of bread or pound of sugar, I will give you the same amount of ethanol. Now, there's only one way to get ethanol, and that's have, have yeast eat sugar. So if I can give you the exact same amount of ethanol from a pound of bread and a pound of sugar, how is the pound of bread not just a pound of sugar? And the answer is, it's a pound of sugar. It's a pound of sugar. Now, we're talking about enriched white bread. I mean, you, you do wheat bread, and you might get a little bit, little few drams less of it because there's some fiber in there that won't convert. But otherwise, a pound of bread, a pound of white potato, and a pound of sugar gives you the same amount of vodka. Um, the other thing is I'll, I'll give you one more um, benefit that I believe uh, this fellow would receive with that build if you went keto. You'll put more muscle tone on. In three to six months of doing this, then the same amount of time hitting the gym every day and working really hard at it. The muscle tone that changed in my body at, at, at my age. Because you know what? When you're 20 or 25 and you start hitting free weights, you can, you can change that muscle tone so easily. When you get up in your upper 30s and later, you can do it, but it's a lot harder. Without the weights, my change, if you look at some of the videos of me even now, and this is you know years into it, and you just look at my arms, my chest, etc., at 50 years of age, and I'm not out lifting weights every day. And yeah, I'm out working on my property and all, but not, not, the, kind of, not the kind of way that people think. I've designed my stuff very energy efficient. I'm pretty much dragging some tubs around and filling them up every day and pulling a few weeds and, cut, and pruning off some tree stuff. Uh, nothing a fat guy couldn't do, because I used to do it when I was fat. Uh, you will be shocked at what it does to your physique. Uh, women and men both. Women and men both, but in, in an appropriate way. You're not going to be a woman, start going keto, and end up looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And as a, as, as a male, you're not either, but you're going to have more of that male cut to you because it's going to properly balance your hormones. Uh, next up, we got another one for the other doctor on the panel. How sunscreen affects vitamin D levels from Dr. Joe Bones Alton. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness, plus the author of the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Calvin, who writes, Should I use sunscreen? I spend a lot of time outside from May through October wearing short pants and t-shirts. I use large amounts of SPF 50 sunscreen because skin cancer is a concern. If sunscreen interferes with D3 from the sun, that's vitamin D3, well, that's not good either. Should I use sunscreen and start taking a D3 supplement? Kind regards, Calvin. Calvin, you're right to be concerned about your vitamin D levels. 42% of Americans suffer from a deficiency in vitamin D, and that's bad because it's an essential nutrient your body needs to maintain good health. Vitamin D is also known as calciferol, 
And the problem is that it's naturally present in just a very few foods like salmon, beef liver, egg yolks, so few, in fact, that it's actually added to milk and other foods, often taken as a dietary supplement as well. And you're right, vitamin D is also produced when ultraviolet UVB rays from sunlight strike the skin. It's been suggested that approximately 10 to 20 minutes of midday sun, that's from about 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., at least twice a week to the face, arms, legs, or back, without sunscreen, may be enough to produce the vitamin D needed by the average person. Now, why is vitamin D important? It helps your body absorb and maintain adequate levels of calcium and phosphate that are important to strong bones. In the past, deficiency of vitamin D was considered to be a cause of rickets, a condition which caused weak, deformed bones in children. It may be involved in protecting against osteoporosis in older folks. Recently, more and more benefits of vitamin D have been found. It's even thought to decrease the risk of severe cases of respiratory infections by decreasing inflammation, cytokine storm, things like that, especially in cases of COVID-19. A number of factors influence a person's vitamin D levels. Here's six. Number one, where you live. The further away from the equator you live, the less vitamin D producing UVB light reaches the Earth's surface during the winter. Residents of Boston, for example, make little if any of the vitamin from November through February. Short days and clothing that covers legs and arms also limit UVB exposure. Number two, skin color. Melanin is the substance in skin that makes it dark. It competes for UVB with the substance in the skin that kickstarts the body's vitamin D production. As a result, dark-skinned people tend to require more UVB exposure than light-skinned people to generate the same amount of vitamin D. Number three, weight. Body fat sops up vitamin D, so it might provide a vitamin D rainy day fund, believe it or not, a source of the vitamin when intake is low or production is reduced. But studies have also shown that obesity is correlated with low vitamin D levels. Being overweight may indeed affect the absorption of vitamin D in ways that we don't know. Four, age. Compared with younger people, older people have lower levels of the substance in the skin that UVB light converts into the vitamin's precursors. 5. Air quality. Carbon particles in the air from the burning of fossil fuels, wood, other materials scatter and absorb UVB rays, diminishing vitamin D production. In contrast, ozone absorbs UVB radiation, so holes in the ozone layer could end up enhancing vitamin D levels. Who'd have thunk it? And what you're asking about, Calvin, number six, use of sunscreen. Sunscreen prevents sunburn and some skin cancers by blocking UVB light. But theoretically, sunscreen also lowers vitamin D levels. As a practical matter, though, very few people put on enough sunscreen to actually block all UVB light, or they fail to reapply it as often as they should during the day. So sunscreen's effects on vitamin D might not be that important. Interestingly enough, an Australian study showed no difference in vitamin D levels between adults randomly assigned to use sunscreen for a summer and those assigned a placebo cream. So Calvin, you can use sunscreen, which will help decrease your chances of skin cancer, something that's very important. Now, should you take a vitamin D supplement? I do. And I take more than the recommended daily allowance. You might consider taking two to 5,000 units of cholecalciferol, that's D3, daily, and check your levels with a simple blood test. You want to shoot for a level of about 30 to 40 nanograms per milliliter. The higher, the better. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening.
Hey, if you believe in our mission, do us a favor and check out our entire line of quality medical kits, some one of a kind, individual supplies, and personal protection gear at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Now, next up, we have one for Tim the Toolman Cook on the effect that, you know, really hot weather has on those cordless power tool batteries. Is it worth bringing them indoors during the summer and, you know, kind of treating them like your pets when it's too hot or too cold outside and you need to bring them in? Hey, guys, Toolman Tim here, coming to you from the workshop at toolmantim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back again to answer another question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. This week's question comes from Stallion. His question is short and sweet, and he asks, Is it really that bad if I store my DeWalt batteries in my detached garage? Yeah, it gets hot in the summer and cold in the winter, but is it really worth the hassle to keep these in the house? Thanks. Well, you have certainly come to the right place for this answer. You guys know I love my DeWalt cordless tools, but more importantly, we have seriously extreme temps up here on the Canadian prairies. Five months ago today, it was minus 40 here, and last week it was 109 degrees Fahrenheit without the Humidex. And I have used my DeWalt cordless gear in both extremes. They work, and they seem to work well. Within the dead of winter, I do see a bit of a decrease in runtime, but it isn't really that bad. So I went over to DeWalt's official website to see what they had to say, and they have an FAQ section on their cordless gear. And they say, does the outside temperature affect batteries and how? Yes, if the batteries are too hot, 105 or higher, or too cold, below 40, the batteries will not take a full charge. Attempting to charge batteries outside that range can result in the permanent loss of runtime. When batteries are being charged and discharged, a chemical reaction is taking place, and if it's too hot or cold, the chemical reaction is disturbed, causing a loss of runtime. So that's technical, but you know, it seems that charging the batteries in extreme temperatures causes more of an issue than just storing them that way. Practically speaking, it'll shorten the life of the batteries. However, if you want to do some reading on the ins and the outs of lithium-ion batteries, batteryuniversity.com is a really good resource. And what they say is, if you store your batteries consistently above 84 degrees Fahrenheit long-term, you're going to see a decrease of about 20%. So the question is, what kind of trade-off do you want? Most people will never wear out their current lithium-ion batteries before something new comes along to replace it with. To me, it's just not worth it bringing the batteries inside when the temperatures are going to get too hot or too cold. I've got my charging set up out in my detached garage and just don't worry about it that much. Most manufacturers claim you're going to get around a 1,000 discharge and recharge cycles with the current generation of the lithium-ion batteries. You reduce that by 20% through improper storage, you're still going to get around 800 cycles. So even if you fully recharge your batteries twice a week, you're going to get eight years out of them. And honestly, I just don't sweat it that much. I do bring them into the house to warm them up to room temperature if it's been below minus 30 for a few days, because the, the chargers have a thermal switch in them and won't allow them to charge if they are too cold. And I try not to let the batteries sit in the back seat of my truck on really hot days because those temperatures in there can get really insane. I try to leave them in the shade or put a sweater or a towel over them if they're going to be in direct sun when we're working. And that's all I really worry about with extreme hot and cold. I hope that helps. For me, keeping them in the shop ensures that they're always charged because that's my system and my setup. When I bring them indoors, I tend to forget to keep them charged because they aren't normally where they should be. And having a system in place to ensure they're charged all the time is more important than keeping them from getting exposed to higher or lower temperatures. So I hope that helps. That's it for me this week, guys. 
If you haven't, take a minute and go by my YouTuber Odyssey channel, where I've recently featured reviews on DeWalt cordless mower, a seriously good pool filter upgrade, and the oddest looking dryer vent I've ever seen. And if you got a minute, stop by the YouTube channel every Sunday evening at 9 p.m. Central Time for my new weekly live stream called Talking Tools, where I share my one-year-later reviews on tools, Q&A collaboration sessions, and most importantly, time to chat as a community and interact with each other. So as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Yeah, I, I myself am um, the kind of person that, that feels if, if the battery's not too hot to charge, it's probably okay. I mean, that's just the way I tend to look at it. I, it gets really hot here. I have them out in my shop building. It is an insulated shop building. It still gets pretty damn hot in there, and I, I just don't worry about it. Uh, next up, Michael, the Bee Whisperer Jordan, on building a habitat for the bees. A mellow jello hello to all my fine fellows. From the me to the we, I hope you're getting our signal. Telegraphing our Discord, there's a Twitter in the parlor. I'm Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company located in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I am on Instagram, but I'm mostly found on Facebook. I'm here to take your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of meads. Super cool question on the Survival Podcast. Making a habitat for solitary and native bees. This one comes from Sean from Maine. I would love your expert advice on making a bee house to put around my property. I've been looking at bee houses online and in stores and realized there are many different species of bees and that some of them prefer different types of homes. Cutter bees, solitary bees, honey bees, mason bees, etc. What are the simplest ways to make habitats for different species? Where do I place them? And what materials do I use? Thanks for your time, and I hope you're doing well. Sean from Maine. Well, Sean, I am doing well, and thanks for asking. I want you to build something to encompass all the bees that we can. So we're going to make an L box. It's an L-shaped box that will hold bees. It's kind of big. I want you to place it like three foot away from your home to four foot away from your home, giving you space between your house and it to work the back panel. Uh, I want you to put it by your house. That way the sun and stuff reflects down on it. Uh, you want it so it has sun in the morning and shade in the afternoon. And it looks like a wall over a bed. And this is how we're going to build it. Sean, I want you to till up a section of dirt, three foot wide, five foot long, just away from your house or building. Dig down about two inches, you know, on that and place the dirt to the side. Now you're going to build a a, almost like a raised bed. You're going to put two by twelves together, two foot wide, four foot long. Should fit quite well in a three foot by five foot space. Since you've dug that down two inches, it'll sit down and have about eight inches to ten inches showing. I want you to pack the dirt all the way around this frame, making it immobile. Inside the frame, 
you're going to place on one end, right in the center, four cinder blocks. They're about eight inches, six inches tall. Uh, they have big holes in the center. I want you to place this, this, the two cinder blocks together so the holes touch, two cinder blocks so the holes touch, and place it right in the center on one end uh, of, of that frame. On the other end of the frame, right in the center, we're going to place a shoe box. You know, get yourself a pretty big shoe box. Uh, inside the shoe box, on one side, you're going to stuff a little bit of pink insulation. Put the lid on it. Poke, oh, three eighth-inch holes, two spots on every side. That way it has airflow in that box. On one end of the box, poke a one-inch hole, and I want you to put in, oh, an approximately 24 to 36-inch, one-inch hose. You can go to hose or to Lowe's or Home Depot and pick up some PVC uh, flexible tubing. Get about one inch. Stuff it in that box, about three foot long. You're going to place the shoe box with the pink insulation and the hose on it on the other end. So the hose comes up right in the middle of your form. So one end you have cinder blocks, the other end you have a shoe box, insulation, and the hose. Now cover the whole thing in wood chips. Now I want you to place a two foot by two foot piece of plywood over the one end that has the shoe box. Now you've made a deck with wood chips on one side. This habitat will habitat and house bumblebees, uh, digger bees, as well as some types of hornets, uh, which are, you know, pollinators as well, and, and what we call wood bees. Uh, that will all go in that frame. Where the wood chips are, place two bowls, dog dishes. In one dog dish, you're going to put marbles in water. and the other dog dish, you're going to put mud. So now you've got a frame. It's got a flat pad, plywood, a hose sticking up right at the end of it. And on the other end, wood chips with two bowls. Now we're going to build the upper L part on that frame. You're going to take a two by four and build a two foot by four foot wall. Place it right above the end part of the plywood. Now it looks like a wall going over your bed. On the top part of the 2x4 that's 2 foot long, place a bead of wax on it and then encase it with plywood on both sides. Now you do have a wall. The wax inside will make it so honeybees can build comb down it. Drill a 3H hole, 1 inch from the top and 1 inch from the bottom on the side with the plywood. And now you've got a wall for honeybees to compass. If you want more, add 4x4s, drilling holes 3 inches deep into the 4x4 using holes that are 3 eighths of an inch to 5 eighths of an inch. Place a 4x4 on each side of your wall. And how you have mason bees and leaf cutter bees. Man, this L-shaped habitat with mud, water, has four by fours, a wall for honeybees, 
Man, this is one of the most ultimate builds. You can encompass as many bees as you want. And if the bees don't come, you can find them online. In fact, you can order honeybees, bumblebees, leafcutter bees, mason bees. Man, order them. Put them in there. Get them going. Let them go by themselves. This is a great habitat build. If you look at all the little homes and all the stuff, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. You know, even between the two 4x4s, you can place a whole bunch of bamboo sticks that are about 6 inches long. 3 eighths, all the way to 1 inch. That's another habitat, right? That'll catch leafcutter bees, mason bees, uh, wood bees, all kinds of stuff. This habitat is a great build. Has a wall and a bed. 4 foot long, 4 foot high. Looks really attractive. You can even hang off of it, bird feeders, hummingbird feeders with sugar to feed the bees. I hope this helps you out. If you have any more questions on this type of build, email me at abeefriendlycompany at gmail.com. That's abefriendlycompany at gmail.com. Catch me on Facebook. Man, if you, this is, this is a great question, great build, way to help out. And if you even have them build and swarm, you're contributing to nature. And I thank you. This is Michael Jordan with AB Friendly Company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I hope that this has helped you. Remember, you should always reach out and help your fellow man. Because we all know, one day, you're going to need help too. Well, good to hear from Michael. We haven't heard from him in a while. If you have questions on uh, honey, bees... Uh, apiary management, uh, mead making, just send them on in for Michael. Remember, you can ask a question to any member of the expert council. TSPC expert in the subject line is a way, sure, is a way to make sure that I know that's what it is and it gets pulled out and it gets rescued from the spam folder if it eats it and it happens. And, uh, always ask your question in one sentence and give me your details after that and it'll be more likely that I and the council member will know what the heck you're talking about and you'll get an actual answer. Uh, next up, we've kind of turned that corner now, getting into the world of the environment and ecology and things like that. And certainly a lot of things people think of as invasives are good for the bees. Um, another invasive species that, uh, or I should say an invasive species that seems to be like, even I, I think, have overreacted to this one. That if you said to me, well, what is an example of an invasive species that was really a horrible, horrible mistake and that, like, if you could undo it, you would? I'm not even sure I'm right about that anymore, but it's kudzu. And we have a question about kudzu as fodder and uh, tree hay as well for Nick Ferguson. And I'll, I'll point out a little interesting irony here in a moment um, after we hear from Nick Ferguson about the trees as well. Hey everyone, Nick Ferguson here with an answer for Knox on using the vine that ate the South. One of the most amazingly overwhelming vines ever. Truly iconic in its ability to completely destroy a forest. But first, I wanted to give you guys a quick update, compiling consulting requests for the rest of this year. So, if you want to get in on the party, shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com with the word consulting in the subject line to make sure it gets to me. And on that, I wanted to put this out there for those of you who haven't considered it. I've done a few consults where a couple to sometimes six people 
couples, you know, groups, all in a region, you know, like a half hour drive from each other, will pitch in to have me come visit each of their properties. We all meet at the first property, spend a few hours as a group going over design ideas and solutions, and then we caravan to the next location, so on and so forth, and hit everyone's property. Everyone basically gets a mini consult and a tremendous education on site assessment and design element placement because we see the same kinds of things happening in multiple different locations in multiple different contexts, and it gives you a lot of uh, comparison and contrast. It's really cool. Um, we learn how to integrate separate features into a cohesive whole. Uh, we cover all that stuff. It's a blast when you have a group like that, and it always seems to be a big hit with the clients too. The costs get split up, so it's way more affordable, and everyone gets personal time and attention. It's lots of fun. Anyways, this year is filling up fast, so hit me up before all my spots are filled. I'll be sending out emails to iron out logistics and schedule here soonish. And now on to the question for Nick Ferguson. I was wondering if you could go over making tree hay and management of fodder trees. Also, what about using kudzu as goat fodder? What are the risks, dangers, and good things about kudzu? Thanks, Knox. Thanks, man. That's a great set of questions. Way too much to cover in my few minutes allowed, so I'll try to hit the high points. So let's just kind of talk about it a little bit. Grass hay... It, when you get down to it, it's cutting leaves, drying them, bundling, and then storing to feed at a later date. Tree haze, exactly the same, except with tree leaves instead of grass leaves. With tree hay, you have a few styles of management. You can grow as a pollard or as a coppice. And those two fancy words are just old terms that simply describe the height at which you keep the tree cut. To pollard, you would ordinarily top the tree above the livestock grazing height. You'd normally see this in a pasture or in a field where animals are grazing underneath of it. And then you have tree crops above their grazing height. So it needs to be high enough that they can't get to it. Often that's around four to six foot high. And then branches would be harvested periodically or sometimes once a year from the canopy with the whole canopy being pruned back to the scaffold limbs every winter. And this leaves you with a scarecrow-looking tree with knobs at the ends of the limbs. Think about the crepe myrtles that you see get chopped off every winter or um, like sidewalk trees in suburbia. Uh, sometimes they end up looking like a U because they only chop the limbs in the center and you have longer, taller limbs on either side. It's kind of weird-looking. Um, generally, you're, you'll see those trees chopped at like 8 to 12 foot off the ground and that keeps the branches out of the power lines. Those are all pollarded. So if you needed kind of a mental picture of what that looks like, that's what they look like. Uh, coppicing is cutting down to the stump. So this is a method to keep it easy to reach, easy to maintain, but the drawback is livestock can get in and break limbs, strip leaves, so it all depends on how you want to manage the system. Some coppice systems, you'll actually grow it kind of like in rows, and they look kind of like hedges, um, and then you'll have that fenced off in a paddock-type management system, and then you'll let in your whole flock or herd in to graze everything off of those leaves, just like you would a pasture, and just like you would a pasture, you don't want to overgraze it. You want to let them strip as much leaves as the plants can handle, and then you get them out of there, and then they self-harvest leaves, and then they keep growing, and they re-leaf out. You can't do that, uh, you know, 
all the time, but with some of these faster growing trees, you can hit them a couple times throughout the growing season and get a tremendous amount of protein out of there. So either way, you're going to cut branches full of leaves and preferably take them somewhere shady to dry completely before storing for winter feed. So we're talking about tree hay. This is, I assume, your meaning, you know, something that we're going to be drying and storing for winter. So uh, you can bundle those, you know, branches, twigs, whatever, with the leaves attached. After they dry, you can bundle them up with vines or twine or whatever you want to use. You could bale the branches or you could just pile them all up like an old hay pile. Uh, some people will go so far as to strip the leaves off. I don't think that's necessary. It just all depends on how much work you want to put in and how much of a hassle the branches are. As for kudzu, this is known as the vine that ate the south. Well, it, it didn't really eat the south, but it. if you've ever been in the deep south, you've probably come across swaths of highway where everything is just covered in vines. It looks like something out of a creepy movie. Well, what happened is it got imported from, I think, Japan or somewhere in South Asia um, as an ornamental, and after people saw that it grew really fast, well-intentioned government bureaucrats promoted its use for erosion control, and farmers were actually paid to plant it on hundreds of thousands of acres. One source I saw saw, said a million acres. Well, that turned out great, didn't it? (laughs) It'll grow about one to three feet a day, and I've seen it grow as much as four feet in a night. Uh, Little side note, plants pretty much only grow at night. Uh, This plant literally grows fast enough to see it growing. I've actually watched it grow. You can actually see it moving. It's creepy. So, obviously, it's vigorous. It can take over an area. So, that's a risk. However, if I could find a property completely infested with the stuff and buy it at a discount, I'd jump at the chance because I could turn a herd of goats loose on the stuff and transform it into goat meat in short order. They love eating it. And like most things, they like eating the sweeter, more tender new growth. Uh, It has a large root that it stores energy in, which allows it to regrow rapidly. So you have to, you know, you can't just knock it down and then walk away from it. It's going to need multiple um, hits to take it out. So you'd graze it really hard, get rid of everything green, and then you move the the animals. And then as soon as it greens back up and it's putting all those um, sugar reserves from the roots up into new shoots and new leaves, you'd hit it again, and you let those goats or sheep in there to eat all that yummy candy, the sweet, sugary stuff that's new growth, and then they knock it down, and you move them again, and then you'd let it regreen up, don't wait too long, and then you'd hit it again, and they keep hitting it, and they just basically deplete all of the reserves of carbohydrates in those roots until the roots die, and then you have clean, kudzu-free land. Um, you could, theoretically, put it in a large pot, surround the pot with a wire cage, put down thick rubber or plastic underneath the pot to prevent roots from in the pot getting into the native soil because it will run underground and run pretty far. And you'd essentially have a kudzu salad bar that your herbivores could just snip off the tender new shoots. So, yeah. Um, it's super aggressive at spreading, vigorous, hard to kill, grows fast, but it's good high 
quality protein leaf matter for animals like goats and sheep. So I hope that answers your question. I'm Nick Ferguson. You can find out more about me by heading over to homegrownliberty.com and rareplantstore.com. It's time for me to get off this computer and go check on my garden. I have some wood chips being delivered soon, finally. I'll talk to you guys later. Do good things. So just a few interesting additions to that segment before I um, go on to our next segment with Jeff Lawton. We're going to continue this this theme today about invasive or non-native species. Kudzu was introduced, as Nick said, he said it was either from China or Japan. It's easy to not be sure because it's from China, but it came to the United States via Japan. So it's kind of both, same but different, right? Well, you would think that, you know, if you think back to like the 70s, if you're old enough, no one really talked much about it. It was late 70s, early 80s before anybody even decided this thing was a problem. And if it grows so fast that you can sit and watch it grow at night, which I don't doubt, Nick, at all that you can, well, then um, you'd think that it would have become a problem pretty quick. Do you know when it was first introduced? Okay, so it becomes a problem late 70s, early 80s. So would you say the 1960s, the 1920s, the 1900s, somewhere in the 19, early 1900s, or the 1870s? Which one of those do you think would be, how long did it take to become a problem? It was first introduced to the United States in 1876. 1876. It took more than 100 years for it to become a problem. Well, what happened? Well, we stopped grazing it. Exactly what Nick was talking about. We, we moved to CAFOs. This, this plant literally wasn't a problem when the majority of livestock in this country were grazed up until they were harvested. When we stopped grazing all the way up to graduation day, and we started realizing we could just rely on CAFOs to shove corn in a cow for the last, you know, 60 days. And then when we stopped doing leader follower systems, when farmers all over the, the country either went big or went home, like we talked about earlier this week. When all that happened, all of a sudden this vine became the problem that we know it is today. That doesn't mean it wouldn't be disruptive to ecosystems and, you know, aliens disrupt places where they land. But they occupy places that have been allowed to go into poor conditions that they're able to adapt to that the natives can't. That's kind of a central theme that we'll come back to. And I'll just throw a couple more at you that are kind of interesting. So Nick was talking about tree hay. Well, there's, there's two trees that make the best tree fodder. And they're sold widely throughout the United States, and they're planted widely throughout the United States today. And except for some people that are really, really touchy on the subject, nobody seems to have a problem with them. There are the white mulberry, which is uh, Morris Alba, and it's from China. The mulberries everywhere in the United States. Lots of white mulberries, lots of Morris Alba. Guess what? No one cares, and most people think it's from here because it's so naturalized. And since it doesn't really do things we don't want it to do, or the things that might bother us, like birds eat it and crap on our cars, well, our native mulberries do the same thing, so we just, no, oh, that's great. And then hybrid willow. Well, hybrid willow comes from 
uh, two trees, and one is Salix alba. We already learned that alba means right, white, right? So uh, Salix alba is the white willow, and uh, Salix babylonica is the weeping willow. Well, the white willow comes from Western Europe, and the weeping willow comes from China. So the hybrid willows we plant all over the place that so nobody has a problem with, nobody shrieks and yells about, come from a hybrid of a Western European and an Asian species crossed and then brought and grown in the United States where it can now self-reproduce. They're not, um, they're not sterile or anything like that. They, white willow, I mean, uh, hybrid willow can make more hybrid willow. And it's great fodder and it's a beautiful tree. And everybody's okay with it because we haven't yet had it find a place completely damaged that it fills in. All of these species that all of a sudden kind of go rampant, the, one of the reasons we tend to think they're a problem is we often see them heavily along roadways, railways, and in urban, suburban, fringe environments where the most disturbances. You know, they say that it's the vine that ate the South, like Nick said, and he, he was pretty clear that it's not. But no, it didn't eat the South, and in fact, a lot of times you'll be driving along, you'll see tons of it, And you'll see a field with a few standing trees, and the trees are basically covered. And what it looks like is it, it ate the whole field of trees. There used to be trees everywhere, and that's the trees that are just barely surviving. No, generally, we've clear-cut the shit out of that place, and it filled the void. It filled the disturbance. I'm not saying it's without consequence, and we'll, I'll talk about it more later. But on this note, I really think you'll enjoy this segment. Again, this was from a Q&A for Jeff's master class, or Jeff's permaculture design course. And when I saw this video come up on uh, YouTube, I cleared it with him first and said, are you okay me running this as a podcast? And he said, absolutely, go ahead. So listen to this, and this is fascinating to me. What is the actual ecological impact of growing non-indigenous species? Is it actually good for the planet to be growing mangoes, avocados, bananas, dates in Italy? where they do not naturally occur. Many of my ecological conservationist friends argue that it is damaging indigenous ecosystems to do this. That's a contentious question. I encourage you to read uh, the book by Fred Pierce. He's a famous author. He also wrote the book When the Rivers Run Dry, which was a page-turner for me. But the book that I want you to read is The New Wild, Invasive Species, The Saviors of Earth. So I believe it is good, and I think weeds are good, and invasive species are good. They indicate to us there is a problem with the native ecology, but they also demonstrate to us that there's nothing wrong with novel ecosystems. Novel ecosystems are the future, and they always have been, and it was always going to happen. Um, we can't have a purist view or a judgmental view about this has to stay in a historic botanical museum, because that is, that's not natural. That's never happened. Right? The continents drifted apart and moved species. But today, you get driftwood rafts arriving with species naturally as well. Is that natural or not natural? Is wood supposed to float down rivers, end up in the ocean, rafted together, with seeds on or with animals on? Is that a natural event or should we ban the, you know, the floating of wood 
Well, where do you stop with this? Yeah, yeah, there has been some catastrophes on islands because islands speciate um, specifically to the limited number of, of, of diversity species on an island. So if you have not many predators, you end up with flightless birds because a lot of birds don't have to fly. There's no predators. And then a predator arrives and decimates that population. But all kinds of things trip and balance that as well. So you know, on islands, you do what get what seems to be quite dramatic losses and extinctions at times, but you get very few, if any, extinctions on continents because there's enough diversity across a continent um, to balance it all up. So, you know, there, there's a, a lot of talk about rats and cats, but actually there's a lot of studies done that when you have, when you take out the cat from an island that are managing the rats. The rats take over and kill more native birds. So cats are often better when you have rats. Now, it becomes a balancing act. Um, what we have to be curious about is speciation. So, and, and all the great books that you can read, and I have a whole set of reference books that uh, we put out here for you. My my type of reading, <laughs> what I'm interested in, I'm really interested in this subject. Because it started off with Charles Darwin and uh, Origin of Species. And he created the subject biogeography, uh, the life of the geography. And Bill Mollison majored in biogeography. So immediately, whatever my teacher Bill was interested in, I got interested in. I thought it was of value. And I've read The Origin of Species probably many times, but there's things in that the origin of species and, and, and also in, in, in Wallace's work who was competing with Darwin for this, you know, speciation evolutionary study of, of, of life on earth. Darwin talks about why did red clover germinate better around the English villages than it did out in the open forest? Uh, why was red clover more abundant around the farming fields and and he studied right let's find a connection what what actually uh germinates pollinates red clover and it was bumblebees and thought well let me study bumblebees where do they live and 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 they live in holes in the ground as well that's interesting do bumblebees actually dig a hole no they don't and uh, they live in um vacant holes of other animals particularly field mice and so it would appear there's more bumblebees around farms pollinating the red clover and favouring the farmers because it's a nitrogen-fixing support species, if you like. You know, it's, a, it's high, high nitrogen, high protein fodder, and it also helps other crops with fertilising the ground. But why would there be more vacant holes of field mice? And then he realised it was cats. It was the village cats which were managing the field mice population, who were quite prolific because they were eating our, our crops and our seeds, but they were, they were actually allowing the vacancy of their holes to be occupied by bumblebees, which was increasing the pollination of clover. So there's a section by Charles Darwin, who was actually looking at connectivity between very diverse elements to end up with more fertility for human production. 
how interesting that he was going down that track of kind of, between a domestic cat and, and, and red clover. You can't see a straight connection, but there's number of elements between. Here comes one of our rainy season storms. So you have to have an open mind. You can't be assuming that you know better just because you have a sentimentality. Nature doesn't make assumptions and nature doesn't have any sentimentality. It just looks at how a system becomes more abundant with greater fertility, particularly in the soil. And we're going to cover this quite a lot. So it goes way beyond uh, you should only eat the crops that are um, grown in Italy or grown in one country or, or that's their endemic origin because where do you ask the endemic question? Where do you start? When are you talking about? At what point in history are we talking? Before the continent separated? After the continent separated? There's many things like this. Carrots come from Afghanistan. They were originally white and they were speciated, in other words, selection, usually done by women, selecting better and better production to purple carrots. But then, why are all our carrots orange, or mostly? Purple ones are now trendy again. It was a Dutch gardener who speciated the first orange carrot to favour the colour orange, which is the colour of the royal family of Holland, the Netherlands. It was just done to impress a royal family. And all our orange carrots come from that one gardener's speciated orange carrot. So it's an interesting question, but can we increase speciation? One of Darwin's finches in recent years was proven to have speciated. He, he studied finches on the Galapagos Islands. Multiple different finches, little birds, had speciated into different types on the Galapagos Island. One of them speciated into a new type of finch within 18 months, within two years. Unbelievable. It, it was, it, it rocked the scientific world how quick things can possibly speciate. Can we increase that? Can we have new speciations all the time? In permaculture, we favor speciation to increase adaptive diversity. Now, instead of an extinction every six minutes, which we have at the moment roughly, could we have a speciation every six minutes by our intended action in our favour? Instead of losing an acre of forest every minute, can we gain an acre of forest? Yes, we can. Everything we do at the present time in the negative, we could do equally well in the positive. All we need to do is go into the right ethical design, science, action. So far about this. What you just heard from Jeff, some of what you heard from Nick today, you might think that my view of you know alien species invasive species imported species and all of our view is just go nuts with everything and don't worry about it and, and no and the book that I'll talk about during the item of the day um, that Jeff mentioned here the new wild um, I've heard that author criticized for that viewpoint and anybody doing that didn't read the book <laughs> I just didn't read the book like you have to literally have purposefully not read the book and decided what you thought it was about so that you can criticize it that way. You might be some criticisms that we can debate uh, about it, but if, if the belief is it's just everything is just fine, don't worry about it, go on, carry on, 
Um, that's 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 just not how this works um, at all. So in in that mind, um, I have an email here, and this was about water hyacinth, which I use, which is an evil invasive species. But the question was, I'm deciding on a small pond, 12 foot by 12 foot, just for water hyacinth, a medium-sized organic swimming pond, a one-acre pond, or a mix of these. I want to grow water hyacinth, but I'm concerned about the larger ponds. Thoughts, best JS. Now, I responded to this, and it is actually very important for me to know where you are, and he doesn't want me to tell you exactly where he is, but what I'll tell you is it's a zone 9. So it doesn't ever freeze, so this plant will overwinter, it will not die, it will make seed, seed will persist for up to 15 years in the mud. Um, it is certainly a larger risk to local ecosystems than it would be around here where I live, where the 60,000-acre lake froze solid for a week last year, and no water hyacinth can survive that. So There is a certain socio-responsibility when you have something that can get out in the wild and go nuts. So the first thing I would want to know here, and I'm not sure about this, does this plant already exist as a species wild where you live? Now, this is this is putting aside the local government and department of making you sad. You got to make that uh, risk-reward calculus for yourself. But does it already exist? So if I went down to South Texas, people would say, oh, my God, if you use water letters for water hyacinth, that's terrible. Look what it's doing. All these bar ditches are full of it. Okay, so what's a stock tank full of it in my backyard going to do? There's 80 gazillion tons of it laying around out here. And you're worried about you know a 300-gallon tub and an 8-foot round tank with some on top of it in my backyard, not connected to any of the water systems. This, this doesn't make sense. However, um, it is a seed producer. And a small piece of it with root on it or seed carried by a bird into a native street, it will go nuts. Now, before I give an answer to this, I want to point out something I learned from this book, The New Wild. So, uh, the largest lake, and it might be the largest lake, no, it's the largest lake in Africa, uh, Lake Victoria, has been just ransacked, supposedly, by water hyacinth. But what it turned out, after... Massive attempts to mechanically eradicate this weed failed. There were some giant floods uh, in a particular year. And the river came through and pushed all of the excess nutrient that didn't belong in the damn lake from all the human pollution out of the lake. And the water hyacinth naturally receded. And then some years went by and, and now it's coming back. As the pollution in the lake, the excess nutrient that doesn't belong there, built up because this is a plant that needs nutrient. And I can tell you flat out, I've seen this for myself. I'm growing a lot of it this year to feed my, my ducks, and they love eating it. It's a fantastic fodder plant, and that's that's why JS here wants to grow it. By the way, you have the same initials, initials as I do. Um, but I had a, a fungal issue in my big Miyagi, And the only solution that I had for a, a body of water that big, I can't treat it with something like you do a, an aquarium, was to do massive water changes. And when I started doing the massive water changes, it was almost completely covered with water hyacinth, and it was all bright green and beautiful and growing very, very quickly. After about a week of doing about a 20% flush through every day, 
all of it started to turn yellow and die. And it was very important to get it out of there because if it lets loose its roots, it can get in the gills of the fish and could actually kill them from mechanical injury. So 12 by 12 and a pitchfork, you, you got it like 15 minutes of work, and it's pretty much cleaned out. And I left a couple to see how they did, and they have yet to recover. But I'm actually using that as an indicator species now. And when they start to perk up, I'll know that my nutrient levels are coming back up in the pond, and there's not enough in there to do damage to the fish. It's interesting. And, and then there's a pond just to the, 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 the west of it where it's beautiful and huge, so that the, the, it's not an environmental change. Or I should say it's not a, a climate change. It's, it is an environmental change, just the, the amount of nutrient in the water. And then my, my pond that I put in over by the duck house that I put duck affluent into, it's, I mean, I can take half of it off and a week later it's back. So it does exactly what it's supposed to do, but it's occupying these waterways that are slow-moving or still that are high in nutrient, and that's where it grows. Now, here's my concern for JS, and I would not put it in the larger one-acre pond. Because I do believe it can become a disaster there. And it is because, number one, it is too big for a person without specifically designed equipment to effectively manage this weed, especially in a climate where it will never die. And it's just small enough that if you experience a die-off, you probably will end up with a massive fish kill because there's not enough volume of water or movement of water to deal with it as it dies. Additionally, that volume of it may pose a risk of invading into the environment around you unless it already is there. If it's already there, I mean, I would say if you're somebody in Georgia growing kudzu, people may hate you, but it's retarded. It's all over the state! My God, look at that piece of it in your backyard! Okay, yeah, yeah, you make a lot of sense, dude. I wouldn't. And I would also say, if you're going to make a, if you're going to do all of this, and you're going to make a 12 by 12 pond, and like right over there is a one acre lake, you're creating a risk of it spreading into your lake because the distance isn't that far. So I would almost say that it would be necessary, at minimum, to like put a net over this pond, like a bird net. You know, you people use to keep their koi from being eaten or something. And then you still have some risk because the plant can go to seed. So then it would have to have to be responsible with this for yourself and others. Effective management. And that effective management would be such that I would suggest that you constantly harvest and watch any that flower. And any that flower must be fed or composted before it goes to seed. And that would be the way to be responsible for yourself and others and do this there. And so, as I said, I'm not saying that we can just throw these invasive species everywhere. And you don't want to be that guy that caused the disruption that doesn't already exist where you are. Maybe. Um, but this plant, we have yet to realize its potential as a society, as a country, And so we are not doing with it what we could do with it. So this could be an incredible resource, and I'll get to that in a second. But it's not. So we have to understand that if we're going to go outside the bounds, color outside the lines, and use these plants. Now, again, I say with the boundaries of let's not make a problem for ourselves, if the horse is out of the barn in our area, when somebody tells me, 
well, I'm not supposed to plant autumn olive in, in West Virginia. I'm like, autumn olive is all, you see what I'm saying? You, you get what I'm saying? Like, this is not a thing, because it already is there. There's a difference between bringing it to a place and using it when it's already in a place. And just letting other people worry about the problem that it's already there. And however they're going to handle it, and probably wrong. So that's what I would say. Now, can we do something else? You didn't tell me what you want to do this for, like what you want to feed. Um, and I don't see that in the extra information. Uh, raising sheep, chickens, and newly planted food for us. So they do, he didn't tell me that's what he's growing it for. And I don't know if sheep would eat what I'm about to give you as an alternative. But a very benign alternative, and it is native to the United States as far as I know, though I don't know if it's native to where JS is, is uh, a plant called Azola. And this is a floating water fern that fixes nitrogen, and it has protein complement uh, comparable to water hyacinth, and I grow that as well. My ducks love it. I don't know how well the chickens really care for it because I feed it to the ducks by putting it into their water tubs. So what I do is I go to one of my little ponds that's covered with Azola, and I take one of those like four inch, maybe they're maybe they're six inch, uh, the baskets that are for putting water plants in. They're square baskets, and they're about as deep as they are. You know, cute. They're kind of cubicle, and they're great because you can just pile that stuff in there, and it drains the excess water right back into the pond. And I get a full one of those, and I'll dump it like half and half into two of their their ponds every day and they eat the crap out of that so that would be something you can look at and i don't know if sheep eat it but i know it's incredibly palatable ducks and it's very very high uh in protein and it's not going to cause you problems it's not going to cause you problems and it would be actually very easy to control with some you know vegetative vegetative eating fish in that big pond and all you decide what you want to do because there's a whole new level of streaking and screaming and what have you um But, yeah, there's so many species that we look at as invasive species that actually are quite beneficial and don't really cause any problems, even the ones that we claim that they do. I mentioned autumn olive, and I'd like to finish up the segment with just a quick discussion on autumn olive and why the state of Texas says it's a horrible plant that should not be grown in the state of Texas. So their reasoning, it's all these plants that are vilified, it's the same textbook. It's the, or I'm sure the same formula. It grows really fast, and it shades out other plants. It outcompetes them and uses moisture and pulls water that could be used for native species. So every native species does the same thing in the place that it grows best. I mean, I've been to places in Pennsylvania where some of the native evergreens, the pines or hemlocks or whatever, they grow or spruce grow so dense, and they drop their needles. And in that grove, and it might be you know, 50, 100 acres, There, it, there's barely another species in that area, but those are native trees, so it's okay, right? And, and they're they're growing in a place that favors their existence, and you'll come out to an edge, and there'll be a little bit of transition. Next thing you know, you're in hardwoods, you're in oak and hickory and butternut. Why doesn't the oak and hit? And then there's like it's all it's like dominant by those three species. Maybe there's some maple in there, and so those four species dominate that space. Why? Because it favors their existence. And if you removed either of them, you create massive erosive problems. So autumn olive, much like kudzu, was planted like most of this stuff is supposedly a terrible problem that the government says has to go away. The government put there. Autumn olive was planted by the millions of plants, by highway uh, erosion prevention programs, 
and tons of money was poured into it. And private landowners were given the plant for free and told to plant it. And now, like you're some kind of eco terrorist if you plant it. I have it here. I will. I will. You will. You will get my autumn olives when you pry them from my cold dead hands. They're not causing anybody any problems. And the state of Texas adds to that template about shading out, using water. The the biggest problem is since it can grow in nitrogen poor soils, <clears throat> and it itself <clears throat> fixes nitrogen. It increases the fertility in low fertility areas, meaning native plants that grow in low fertility areas, like autumn olive does, can be outcompeted, and eventually the fertility comes up so high that they stop growing altogether in that particular area, leaving out that unless it's well cared for, so does autumn olive. Autumn olive actually successes itself out of a job. It likes nitrogen-deficient soils. That's where it actually grows best because it only outcompetes other plants there because it has that nitrogen fixation ability that it's actually not that capable of outcompeting plants once the fertility comes up. So it's not that it won't grow where fertile soils are. It's that it no longer can outcompete its neighbors once the soils are fertile. So the inference then would be that we are, we are concerned that in the state of Texas, which is the size of many nations in, in the world, we might run out of infertile soils for plants that like infertile soils to grow in. Really? And this is the mindset where I want to transition to the item of day with this book. If you've enjoyed this discussion, if it started to make you ask questions, including if you're resisting this because, well, everybody knows, I really want you to read this book. Again, it's called The New Wild, Why... Invasive Species Will Be Nature's Salvation by Fred Pierce. Here's some things that, for example, that you'll learn about in it. How an alien tree was blamed for drying out rivers in the United States, though it was growing downstream of where the river dried up. This is the Rio Grande in Texas. They said, oh, it's this tree. It's horrible. We brought this here. We thought it would stop the desert, and look what it did. It dried up the river. But when the author went to see it, The river was dry above where the trees were. And native trees were growing in the riverbed above where these invaders were. Interesting. I just think so, right? Um, how a plant in the UK is claimed to have been so bad it can break through the walls of your house and invade your living room. This propaganda was done to the point where if you have, if you have this plant on a property, you can't sell it because nobody can buy it, because nobody can get a mortgage on it, because a bank will not... Lend money if this plant exists on the property, specifically in one particular area of England, but yet that's never happened. That's just never happened. Like, there's literally like terror propaganda around this plant, and they said it costs $250 million a year to control in England. It turns out that's based on one small area where they actually worry about it, where the rest of the UK, they don't really do anything about it. And they assume that the problem is as bad in the entirety of the UK as it is in this one area. It's asinine. How about how a water plant, that would actually be the water hyacinth we just talked about, once helped clean out one of Africa's largest lakes from pollution. How an island that was 95% bare rock turned into a cloud forest with massive species plantings. Why the concept of stopping these plant and animal migrations, which is what they really are, is flatly ridiculous at this point. Like, this is not going to happen. How thousands of species are moved around annually just from the ballast water in ships. 
So ships actually need to weigh more when they're empty than they do. They float too high. So once they dump cargo, if they're not reloading an equivalent amount of cargo for their return trip, they suck water into them to make them go lower in the water. And then when they get back to where they're going to load cargo again, they, jet, they jettison that water. And this moves like millions, if you count the bacteria and, and things like that, and algae. Millions of these species are moved from coast to coast every year. And flatly, annual trade winds, winds move thousands of species in dust particles in the air. From Africa to the southern United States, from parts of, of Asia to the United States, from the United States to islands that are remote in the Pacific. And there's even a story of how a piece of a jetty, a huge wooden piece of a jetty, broke off in Japan and ended up in Washington State. And there were dozens of foreign species on the jetty piece, which people fortunately found and prevented their invasion. But that was a natural occurrence, except for, well, man did build the jetty, but a tree could do the same thing. And I think Jeff hit something here that I find really interesting. Speciation. Literally the emergence of new species. So much has been made about the loss of species. But these aliens, if you want to call them that, and that's what the guy calls me. He doesn't mean it in a negative way. He's putting some perspective into it. And that's what Fred Pierce calls them in his book. They actually change in ways when they move sometimes. Some of them grow larger or smaller than they do in their home places. They often cross-breed. They often begin to adapt specifically to their new environment. And yes, we can look at tragedies like the Chinese chestnut bringing a fungus or a blight to the United States that wiped out the U.S. chestnut trees. I have to tell you I'm questioning even if that's exactly what happened or why it happened. Why were our chestnuts so susceptible to this blight at the time that it occurred? In almost every instance that I've, that I've investigated in this book, when, they, when the author claims something, it turns out to be completely validated. The existing ecosystem was already in decline, and the invader didn't take over a healthy ecosystem and alter it. It moved into a niche created in a failing ecosystem, and in many instances, not all, but in many, repaired it. There's so much more to this. There are literally thousands of species in the United States that we see as worthy of protection today that are non-native. And there are many species throughout the world that other nations feel the same way about, that originated here. This book is a fascinating look, and it will validate for you something else. My ongoing criticism of so-called science as an institution and an authority. I have massive, massive faith in the scientific method and the scientific process. Read this book, and not only will you learn a lot, not only will it change your paradigm, But it'll it, whatever faith you have in the scientific process, it'll lower it. If it's already as low as you think it can go, why do you read this book, man? It is totally worth reading. And it is available in paperback, hardcover, and Kindle. And all the hardcovers actually cost less than the softcover, but they're used. So it's up to you what you want. Anyway, again, it's called The New Wild. And you can always support us by doing your online shopping, no matter what you buy, starting where? tspouse.com. All right, let's wrap things up today with 
Well, number two, if you want to help support the show, the best way, the best way, become a member. Become an MSB member. Come on, what, you know, if you're sitting there going, I've been thinking about doing this, but look, become a member, log in, start using the discounts, keep track of how much you save, and at the end of the year, look at the two numbers. And odds are you will save more money than you spent. We call that a profit, and there's no reason not to do it, and you'll help support the show that you love and the work that I do. Now, let's go from there and move into our song of the day. I've been been teasing this all week, and some of you, I'm sure, have figured out what the song of the week is already as we're going through Aaron Lewis week. And this also ties into my Miyagi Mornings live stream uh, that I did today that will be part of the Miyagi Mornings recap uh, episode that comes out tomorrow. Where I said freedom isn't po as popular as you think it is. And I've become, over the years, a very conflicted man. And this song... Nails that. And I'm going to warn you right now, so I don't get any Karen emails. The F word is used in this song twice, and there's a radio safe version, and I absolutely am not going to play it because the song doesn't mean the same thing without those explicit lyrics. In fact, I challenge you, if you doubt me, to look up the sanitized version of this song, and it doesn't feel the same. It's called Am I the Only One? And it goes through all of the shit that's going on in our society right now. Ripping statues down, burning flags, destroying the American way of life. And I'm, I, I feel like a unicorn sometimes. I don't hate this country. I don't hate this place, and I damn sure don't hate the ideals of this place. If you have a flag, and you own it, and you burn it, it's nothing but a cloth, and it never meant anything anyway, because it didn't mean anything to you when you purchased it. If you rip somebody else's flag down and burn it, I will beat your ass. Not so much because it's a flag, because you're damaging somebody else's property. That doesn't mean that I don't see value in the ideals represented by that flag, which is spoken of here. What's put me in such conflict is many years ago I was a soldier, and I was a young soldier. For those that are maybe new to me and don't know my backstory... I joined the Army when I was 17, and I didn't just enlist at 17. I went off to basic training when I was 17 years old. I didn't know what I really wanted to do with my life, but I did not join the Army like some do because I didn't have another option. I had lots of options. I'm a smart person. I had good grades. There were opportunities there if I'd wanted to take them. I joined the Army because I believed in my country. I had uncles, great-uncles, a father, grandfathers who all served, most of them in time of war. And it mattered. It mattered in my family. Funny enough, it didn't really matter to my friends. My friends didn't understand why I joined the Army. Because they thought about it a different way. And, and I thought about this too. Your freedom is gone. Look at how we like you know we go out every weekend and have drink beer and hang out in the woods and go fishing and hunting and you know just do what you want to do, and they did understand enough to know that when you put that green camouflage suit on and they shave your head, you're subject to following orders. You do not have liberty as we think of it, even in a society that's lost so much of it. You're giving up a lot. When you're fully informed, and I was at 17, you're willing to do that. You believe it. If you didn't believe it, you wouldn't do it. 
And that person who I was is still in me. I've talked about this before. We change, but we don't stop being who we were. We just evolve. 17-year-old Jack Spirico lives in my soul the way that 49-year-old Jack Spirico lives in my soul. And when I'm 65, if I make it that long, or older, hopefully, all of the Jack Spiricos in between and before now will be in there. Same with you. And I know the heart and the soul of the vast majority who serve is full of honor in every way that can be measured. I know they're abused. I know that we're sent to do things that we shouldn't do to places we shouldn't go. That as a nation, we should have learned a long damn time ago to mind our own damn business and stop touching and interfering with other people's right to live the way that they want to. I'm fully aware we're being lied to right now as we're hearing all the hysteria about withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban's just taking over and rolling over everything. And they were stupid enough on Fox News when talking about this. They showed the surrender of Afghan security forces that we spent 20 years trying to stand up. And they talked about it as though they were marching with their guns over their heads and being overrun and surrendering. And instead what they showed, they, somebody must have slipped up. Maybe somebody at Fox News that works in B-roll uh, management wanted the truth to get out and managed to do this. They showed several members of the Afghan security forces with their rifles slung across their back embracing several members of the Taliban. Now, that's not saying the Taliban's good guys. What it's saying is the Afghan security forces weren't surrendering in the way that they meant the terminology. That meant they really never wanted us there in the first place and that we were doomed to fail. I know all of this. I know we've dropped bombs that have landed on little children. I know all of this. It doesn't change what service means. And the people, when they're serving, they don't know that that's what they're going to be doing. They don't think, gee, I'm going to join the military so I can go bomb a fucking hospital. And anybody that thinks they do, you're an idiot. I'm sorry. You are. You're going to hate this song. I'm surprised you're still listening if that's you. No, they don't know. And the loudest voices against our military's action overseas today come from veterans. Much of what you know, those of you who never served, much of you, what you know about how wrong some of our actions are in those theaters, it's only because of people like me who told you. I guess what I'm saying is, in many instances, especially in the anarcho space, don't talk shit about what you don't understand and what you can't understand because you were never there. And when I look at the United States, I kind of see two entities. And I'm going to use... United States for one of them and America for another, even though they are in a sense interchangeable, but to define what I'm talking about. Because this is a conflict within me that it took me a long time to resolve, but the minute I did, I fully understood it, but it's hard to explain. To me, I'm going to say in this instance, use the term United States, is a giant government-controlled corporation. It is a place defined by border and law, and force. America, and that's a nation, right? That's a country. Let's say it's a country. America is a nation. America is the remnant of us who are bound by common ideals, 
and common morality. We believe there is a such thing as right and wrong, and that everybody should be free to pursue that in their own way. We have no problem with anybody's religion until the religion says that they're allowed to come steal our stuff or hurt us. We have no problem with anybody's way of life as long as it doesn't impinge on another person's way of life. That's the common ideal that really is America. The, the most sacred right, the most sacred right that this place, that this union, and I don't mean a union of states, this union of people was founded on, is the fundamental human right to be left alone. The most egregious sins of our government is the failure to leave people alone and to actively interfere with people's rights, their inalienable rights that comes from their creation. I believe that. And I don't even care if you believe that we were created by evolution. We still have these fundamental rights from our creation. Life Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And one cannot have control of their life, true liberty, or truly pursue happiness if they cannot simply be given enough grace to be left alone. And to me, that's what this song is about. It's about the people that refuse to leave us alone. And about what is simmering and brewing like a powder keg if at some point we are not left alone because we are all reaching a point where we're going to tell these people something they hate to hear more than any other word that they hate to hear no no you can't have it you can't take it you can't do this anymore no And I am hyper-aware that there may be a, a, a concentrated push to create a true conflict here. And I will say this. While I pray in every way that my being can, that that doesn't happen. If it ever does, I've already chosen my side. I hope you have too, because as I said in a, a Miyagi Mornings last week, If it ever comes, we will not choose it. Someone else will choose it. And we'll have to make a decision at that point. And it is much better if that decision has already been made. With that, has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Am I the only one here tonight Shaking my head and thinking something ain't right Is it just me? Am I losing my mind? Am I standing on the edge of the end of time? Am I the only one? Tell me I'm not Who thinks they're taking all the good we got And turning it back Hell, I'll be damned I think I'm turning into my old man Am I the only one willing to bleed? 
Take a bullet for being free Screaming what the fuck at my TV For telling me Yeah, you telling me That I'm the only one Willing to fight For my love of the red and white And the blue Burning on the ground Another statue coming down In a town Watching the threads of old glory come under Am I the only one not brainwashed Making my way through the land of the lost Who still gives a shit and worries about his kids As they try to undo all the things he did Am I the only one who can't take no if you don't like it, there's a fucking door This ain't the freedom we've been fighting for It was something more, yeah, it was something more Am I the only one willing to fight For my love of the red and white and the blue Burning on the ground, another statue coming down in a town Watching the threads of old glory come undone Not the only one I'm not the only one 